This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks and a move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 158. Yes, we are back from a little vacation. Ready to go. Well, just ahead, Lazy Boy. They've got inflation problems. They've got supply chain problems. So why is everything going so well? And Oracle, it's secret to stealing big business from big competitors. And one cloud company with a customer-first attitude aiming to make the banking industry more transparent and work faster to lend more. Blend Labs CEO Nima Gasari joins us. But first, sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-A-R-A.com. And you have so many ways to listen to the Drill Down podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, tune in. But it's a lot easier if you hit subscribe so you can catch every show. And the Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T dot com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We're going to explain the business stories behind stocks and a move. Joining me as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. We're back from a little vacation, a little summer vacation. Yeah, it was nice. No shark attacks. Good. The, you, the you summer's young, that. though. Let's just wait. There will still be some shark attacks. You know it'll be slow news again when we've got shark attack stories. Yeah, but I, something tells me it's not going to be a slow news summer. Uh, I'm feeling the same thing here. Um, <laughs> and God knows the results we've seen on, you know, from coming from companies and coming from those quarterly calls and, and comp- yeah. uh, company comments. Um, we've seen some really interesting stories about what's working and what's not and extreme yeah. reactions in the market. Let's dig into some of those. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Kroger. Kroger. Kroger trades under KR and shares have risen almost 21% in a year, outperforming the broader market. I like this uh, story so often because it really is a pure play on the grocery business. Obviously, it's Kroger. But um, I think it tells us a lot about what's going on from the consumer. There's lots of pronouncements and lots of um, commentators who think about what the consumer should be doing or about what they would be doing or what they think if they were like a certain kind of person, whoever that commentator is, what they would be doing in a grocery store. But we can hear it firsthand from Kroger. We can find out what's happening with customers. And I think what's really interesting here is that they're actually seeing decent numbers, but um, they're seeing customers come in and buy, kind of spend just about as much money, but buy fewer things. Hmm. It's really interesting. It's a conversation about basket size. Uh, and uh, what Kroger has seen um, hasn't indicated that people are actually saving money or pulling back but they want to do the things where they think they're pulling back. Here's Kroger CEO, Bill McMullen. If you look at uh, 
in terms of traffic, the, the two areas that we uh, felt really good about is if you look at the number of loyal shoppers we have and our household count both improved. Now, the uh, typical basket size for a customer coming in uh, continues to uh, decline. Part of that is uh, just driven because of the economic environment some customers are having. If you look at uh, identicals uh, during the quarter, toward the end of the quarter, they uh, finished uh, a little stronger than where we were during the quarter, and that's continued uh, so far uh, early in the the second quarter. Obviously, we're extremely early in the quarter. Obviously, uh, we do have a a reasonable size uh, general merchandise business that uh, affected as well. And the comment that I made in the prepared comments, uh, you know, if you look at our fresh departments, uh, they were up over 5%. So overall, we think uh, the customers are doing a lot of work on balancing their total budget, uh, and we continue to balance it uh, as well with uh, promotions. And then uh, customers are uh, aggressively uh, starting to buy our brands, and what they're finding is the quality of that product, uh, and there's no compromise uh, with that versus uh, some of the other products. And the, uh, if you look at our price spreads, uh, we check uh, pricing, uh, obviously, uh, every week. Uh, we uh, look at pricing spreads for different types of customers, and uh, the, those spreads continue to be uh, where they've been or uh, improving slightly, as been the case over the last uh, couple of years. My reaction is, I feel like if I was Mr. Kroger, I would be a little bit more concerned about the typical basket size declining. For yeah, customers. well, interesting. I mean, the, yeah. Um, what McMullen had to say there, though, I think was really interesting. They went on later in the conference call to kind of clarify this. The CFO came on and, and said that um, they still expected margins to be the same over the course of the year. But if they're raising prices and keep margins the same, that means that profits are going to increase, just not exponentially. But um, uh, higher profits for Kroger, um, even as people are pulling back, but maybe people aren't pulling back in the ways that really matter um, in terms of their total budget um, with uh, you know, the amount of spend in the typical basket being about the same. I just wonder how long people will continue to digest or figure out ways to digest, pun intended, higher prices for food. Oh my God. You liked it. Corey, what is your next drill down? I thought we'd look at that little software company down in the Silicon Valley Peninsula. I guess it's up from the valley, down from San Francisco, down from where I am. It's Oracle. It's a behemoth in the world of software. Yes, it is. Trades under ORCL. Shares have fallen 15% in a year, and they've fallen 24% since the beginning of the year. You know, I looked at the quarter that they announced last week, and I'm I think that we want to listen very carefully to what we hear about how big businesses are spending and where they're spending. There's a presumption that big businesses are going to pull back and they're going to pull back from big ticket items, not least of which giant decisions about how to store and what to store and what software programs to launch and what new initiatives to launch. Those decisions, pausing those decisions have historically in in economic downturns been really punishing for companies like Oracle. If a company decides to stick with the old database that they were on for so many years and wait for that big change when they have the money to spend, um, that can be damaging to Silicon Valley uh, in a big way. We saw it big time in sort of 2001 or so. All of the upgrades that we saw in the technology stack in the 1990s that was attributed to Y2K 
that was a big spend that kind of stopped right after Y2K. Um, that was, you know, later called a dot-com bust, but it wasn't just that. It was big companies deciding not to spend because they'd already done that big uh, turnover and, and upgrading of their systems. So what happens going forward? We look for companies like Oracle and others to tell us um, what's happening. Certainly we'll be watching Cisco here um, uh, and Dell, I suppose, not, not the same kind of public tree of the traded stock, but a company that tells us a lot about big spend. And what Oracle uh, made the point uh, over and over again in the conference call, and the numbers backed it up, they're getting a lot of cloud business and they're getting a lot, you know, everyone talks about Amazon Web Services and Microsoft Azure and, and Google, but Oracle is really stepping in and getting some really big companies to sign up um, on their cloud service and, and becoming a real viable player, um, albeit probably number four, um, in this fast growing market of cloud services. Safra Katz, Oracle's CEO, talked about large enterprises, large customers this way. Large enterprises understand that having an unlimited agreement for some period of time, an unlimited agreement gives them unbelievable flexibility. Any large customer, large database user that does not have an unlimited agreement with us is is really not optimizing for their spend because it gives them incredible flexibility. They can use on-premise for as long as they need it, they can move to the cloud and get a much lower price in the cloud with BYOL, and they can move back and forth, and it just gives them the kind of flexibility. Those agreements are the ultimate sort of the foundation of so much of what goes on. In addition, of course, in technology, we also have our leading Java business, which on-premise is in extensive use, and in the cloud is at no charge. So customers can be motivated to bring their Java to the Oracle Cloud and to use, use it at no charge, their Java programs, and to use it at no charge. So we have a lot of things that incent bringing your Oracle databases to our cloud and, of course, all your Java work to our cloud. So um, both of those are absolutely critical for our license numbers uh, to be as strong as they are. And the Oracle database, you know, I've been following Oracle for, well, since the 80s. And I always, you know, we always hear about some new product that's about to uh, overtake Oracle. And the reality is that the Oracle database is beyond the gold standard. And that's why these companies like Oracle go into these big new businesses like cloud services, because they've already got the corporate customer. They already have the trust of those customers because they've got things like the database that entire businesses. I mean, you and I worked at a company called Bloomberg. Yes. Where yeah. the entire Bloomberg system is built on an Oracle database. Right. Many companies are like that. And, and, and they're, not, they're not quick to make those kind of changes. Corey, what's your next drill down? So I don't know why they call this company Lazy Boy. I mean, I get it. Because the, the, that old chair where you throw, the, throw the, the handle and it kicks out so you can lay down on the Lazy Boy. Right. But they spell it Lazy Boy. Uh, it, it, yeah, it, it's a weird word to look at. They should call it la Lazy Boy. Yeah. Or just Not, spell it out, Lazy Boy. Z 
I mean, for those of you at home, Lazy Boy Jay-Z is spelled- Jay-Z doesn't call himself Ja-Z. <laughs> L-A-Z-Boy. Anyway, it tra- boy. Lazy Boy- Laze boy, laze boy, uh, <laughs> trades under LZB <laughs> and shares are jumping today, but they fall in 35% in a year, currently trading around $24, a ways off from their 52 week high of more than $39. So we're going to get into this later in the show, but the presumption is if people are pulling back, inflation is causing people to believe they need to spend less money. And even if their gas prices are rate costing them an extra five or 10 or $20 a week, they're going to suddenly pull back on thousands of dollars of spending like new furnishings for their house. That's mm-hmm. the belief. So you wonder what do they really say about what's going on at Lazy Boy? And Lazy Boy actually put up a pretty strong quarter when they announced their earnings. And I think what's interesting because what they've had to do is what a lot of companies had to do in the last couple of years, figure out their supply chain, Stop making things that are slightly different than other things so that they can get something in the store to sell and figure out how to manage prices um, by turning inventory over as quickly as possible to be able to adjust, uh, adjust for inflation. Was Here's that a pun? Like lazy, lazy boy adjustment? That? Adjusting the lazy, bo- lazy exactly. boy lever? So here, throwing the lever, <laughs> Melinda Whittington. Oh, my goodness. Did you know that? Um, here's, some, here's some trivia. Our friend Harrison Westwater. Yeah. When he was hired at Bloomberg before he started there, it, uh-huh. uh, people heard that his name is what? Harrison Westwater. So within the building, the, the people started referring to him as Huntington Whittington III. <laughs> True story. But wow. Melinda Whittington is the name of the CEO at Lazy Boy. And here's that's some wasp about. humor right there, guys. Everyone listening, that's some wasp humor. Yes. If you're on the Melinda East Coast, Whittington. you're probably laughing. Or if you're on the West Coast, you're probably like, what? Melinda Whittington, here she is talking about what the consumer is doing in terms of spending less frequently, but maybe starting to spend a little bit nonetheless. As far as the consumer, the entire industry over the last three, four months is certainly seeing a slowdown in traffic. And and I think there's a couple of things driving that. Um, You know, overall, consumer sentiment, no no doubt, is, is challenged. Um, you know, as we talked about and everything from, you know, inflation and, and, you know, we can certainly go into to more there. The other piece that that I think we don't know the relative impact of each of these is the return of seasonality. So for the last couple of years, we really haven't had kind of a, a, a big difference quarter to quarter in consumer sentiment. And this is the first this is the first spring in several years that consumers were getting a, a regular spring and summer. People are traveling again and all. And so and if you go back pre-pandemic, the spring and summer were always significantly slower than kind of the back half of our year. And so that return of seasonality is definitely driving some of it. Um, and then we have to keep in mind that furniture pricing is still quite high right across the industry. We're you know, 25 to 35% higher um, you know, due to all of the input costs um, than we were pre-pandemic. And, and again, that, those are all across the industry. So I love the furniture business. I love the changes in the furniture business. And I love, frankly, how Lazy Boy is managing this. I don't give investment advice and I don't, you know, don't own the stock. I've never considered owning the stock. But it is, um, it is interesting to look at what's going on at this company and how they're managing um, changing consumer behavior coming out of the pandemic. I got to say, I'm surprised as well. I mean, Lazy Boy owns a lot of different brands, right? 
And so you should go into one of the stores and see what they sell. That stuff would fit perfectly in your house, actually. I'm sure it would. I'd be honored to have one. But, um, <laughs> but, it's um, not one, it's not like they make one stupid chair. Maybe in the that's 50s, what I think. Maybe. That's what I think about it. I need to educate myself. Apparently, but at Lazy so. Boy, these numbers though, I'm I'm very surprised. It's it's pretty it's uh pretty impressive how they've been able to manage the last quarter. Yeah. So all right. So that perfect segue into the interview we're about to do here because we're going to talk about what's going on with homeowners and lending and our homeowners borrowing to do things like renovations and refit their living rooms and furnishings and so on. Blend Labs, the company that does the software behind a lot of the loans that happen in banking and non-banking lending in the U.S., their CEO, uh, Nina Nima Gamsari, who comes from Silicon Valley, quite honestly, was at Palantir before he started this company, has an interesting view of what's happening in the lending world and how they're using technology to let banks do what they do best. But first... The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. But as promised right now, we are joined by Blend. Uh, at Blend Labs and Blend Labs CEO, Nemo Gasari joins us right now um, from the San Francisco Bay Area, I'll call it, since all of us can work from anywhere right now. As far as I know, you could be in Bora Bora right now from what I can tell from the camera, but our viewers can't tell. As far as they know, we're sitting next to each other. Yeah, I mean, I could be, I could be anywhere. I could be in the Middle um, East where I grew up. I could be anywhere. And I suppose that that is, uh, where'd you grow up? I was born in Iran. I didn't really grow up there. I grew up in the, in the Midwest, actually, in Ohio, but I was born okay. in Iran. Um, uh, there's nothing wrong with the Midwest. Um, uh, and, and, um, that's why I'm also was originally born in the Midwest. Um, the, I, it does occur to me that, that, that the ability to work anywhere has got to be something that helps, um, propel your business forward. How do you describe what blend does? And then I will misdescribe it. Sure. So the way that people historically engaged with banks was if they wanted a loan or they wanted to open a new account, there would be a ton of paperwork where the bank would gather a bunch of data on you and your income and your, you know, your other bank statements and your credit report. People would read that information and then in a few weeks they'd give you a loan or not, depending on that, or they'd give you, open a new account for you or not, uh, depending on that information. Blend is a software layer that turns that process of very paper-based, very manual lending into a digital and eventually an instant process where a consumer can go in all the data around you with your permission is pulled in, processed in real time, and the loan options are presented to you. You choose one and you get ready to close that loan. And so in the particular case, for example, of, of uh, getting a home, we can approve you for a mortgage in seconds or minutes and get you ready to on the path to closing and doing that digitally uh, over the next you know, couple of weeks as you're ready to find a home that you, you, you love. But importantly, you're not the lender. Right. You're We're not, not the you're the wrapper yeah. of the software that a bank puts to work or a lender puts to work. Yeah, we're the software that the bank or lender would use to serve to serve you as opposed to being the lender ourselves. So think of it, it's their credit policy. They're deciding whether to take you on as a as a borrower or a customer. And we're helping them do that digitally and in a totally mobile, friendly, consumer friendly way so that you get a great experience at a lower cost. All right. So in reading your 10K, it reminds me of a business that I was once invested in a hedge fund that was at a similar kind of uh, it tried to create a first class software um, experience 
for maybe second or third tier size banks in this case. And now, of course, there are many more lenders than just plain old banks. But the idea was that, you know, the, that the customer has the same expectations that they'd have from a Chase or a Citibank from whatever bank they want to use. And the banks want to offer that so they go to a company like yours to get the product. Is, is that fair to how we think of your product? Products? Um, it's actually kind of the opposite. So I'm glad you brought that up. Our product is based on the premise that one, banks have been underserved by software for a long time. There's been most of the software products that banks use are built around paper-based manual process. They were built 30 years ago. Right. And even the biggest banks have a really high cost of offering these products to consumers because it's so paper-based and analog. So we're, many of the clients of ours are some of the biggest banks and lenders in the country. And we're taking them and the smaller ones and everyone in between, you know, in order of magnitude better, a, le- a big leap forward. And so the idea of doing something instantly, offering a mortgage approval instantly or a home equity approval or a personal loan approval is a really complicated one because it's a bunch of data, a lot of different credit permutations, and we help bring all that together in one place so that the consumer can do it really quickly and the bank can do it very cheaply. So this is really something to aid the bank's uh, analysis process, not just a cute front end for the customer. Exactly. Yeah, it's everything all the way through closing that loan, in fact. So in a perfect world, for example, if you apply for a personal loan at you know XYZ Bank, could be a big bank, could be a small bank, you quickly get a, you show, they, say, they show you their rates, you decide you want to move forward with a $40,000 personal loan, you quickly get approved in a matter of seconds, and then the next screen is, we're going to have to get some additional information and make sure you're, you know, a good person and you can't, you're, you know, you're not a, a fraudster. And then, or a bad gonna, person who will pay back a loan, or a bad Sometimes person who will pay back a loan. Those are some <laughs> of the best. And then we'll, and then we'll just choose which account to fund it to, and the funding shows up in your account. And so we're sort of that end-to-end process. In a mortgage, it's even more complicated. You know, for example, we help facilitate the title process, which manages the closing of a mortgage, so that you, as a consumer and the bank, you have one entity to work with. As a third party, you can manage that entire process end to end. And is that the Title 365 business? Yeah. So Title 365, we have a whole marketplace of title providers, including, you know, just like any marketplace, sometimes we like to play in it ourselves. Title insurance is a key part of the mortgage process. And so we have an offering in that space. Title insurance seems like a ridiculous product to me, having bought and sold a few homes. It's definitely one of those products where if the world were built today, it would look so different. It would be a hundred, it would be a database lookup instead of a, an insurance product. Um, but the world wasn't built today. And so every county has its own process for verifying that Corey is the person on the title on this property before you sell that property. So explain the title 365 business of which you guys acquired, right? Explain to me how, how what, give me a little more details on that and, and kind of how that works um, with your other products. Because it did seem to be very different um, than your existing products your, your prior to the acquisition. Yeah, and, and just to talk about what, what we try to do in the home ownership process, whether it's mortgage or home equity lending, we want to be the system that connects all the components together. And there's appraisals, there's you know valuations, there's real estate agents, there's title insurance. And this just enough, that was just another component of the process. And it happens to be one of the big legs of the stool. So for people who don't know, this is one of the most misunderstood parts of our business. For those who don't understand how title insurance works, it is a county by county product that the consumer has to verify that the person on the other side, not the consumer directly, but they have to verify that the person on the other side of the transaction actually has title on the home, that they actually own the home and there's no outstanding liens on it that would take you know, priority over a new lien on this property. And so it's a very complicated process, very paper-based, very manual. And we wanted to build an amazing digital homeownership journey and not just 
a software platform that can only which do no one else pieces. in that industry wants to have happen because they would lose the p- business their grandfather started or whatever it is. Well, it's I think it's really good for and the consumers want it and the banks and lenders want it. Yeah, I think and and we again we work with other title companies on our marketplace, so we we, we work with thousands of title agencies across the country to at least integrate them to the process. But we wanted to have a digital first offering on our platform, which is why we acquired Title Three Sixty Five. So now the difference is it used to be that process took days or weeks. And a lot of cases we can instantly verify that you are the person on that, the lien on that property and instantly give title insurance and then prepare for the closing, which can also be done over video. Uh, just like people do zoom meetings today, you can close a loan, a, a mortgage loan on your video uh, uh, in a really modern and simple way. So it could be, it's better for everyone um, except for maybe legacy providers. Yeah. Um, the uh, God, I'm thinking of the offices I would go to and they'd sit there and they'd stamp the documents and it ha- literally like with like a rubber stamp and pages For an and hour. pages. Oh, it was insane. It was, an, I, I, yeah, I, I, I uh, the first home I tried to buy, I was, a, I was going as a second bid. Thankfully I didn't get the house. My, my mortgage lent broker at the time, he was my mortgage broker for about 10 minutes that day, showed up with a different mortgage that paid him a fee. And if I didn't take that mortgage, I had no shot of getting the house. And that was the kind That's, of bullshit that would show up in these, you know, in this paper-based process. And by the way, th- there are tons of examples of that. And on the flip side, I'll say one of the things that gives me optimism is that there's so many companies and people now that want to do the right thing by the consumer. And the ones who do the right thing by the consumer are eventually going to win. It'll take time, but it'll, it'll happen eventually. So your Title 365 business is substantially larger than your blend platform segment, Yes was last year. This year, it's just different because refinances are coming down. Our blend platform segment is growing. That's and what I was going to ask. I think of it as just another piece of the puzzle. And it happened to be a big acquisition. So it was bigger than when we when we started, uh, but big, bigger than the blend platform business than we started. But the blend platform business, that is the, you know, that's the moat. That's the thing that our customers love. That's the thing that title plugs into. That's the thing other things will plug into over time as we get into more and more of this ecosystem. So you imagine that Title 365 will ultimately be a much smaller party or, or that the blend platform will grow to be much larger than the, the, the currently shrinking Title 365 business. Yeah, and it's, it's shrinking intentionally. We want to migrate that to either digital on the platform title. We don't want to be in the traditional title insurance business. That's not the business that we're setting out to solve for. Uh, we want to be in a business that is integrated, an integrated ecosystem that allows title to be a very important but very digital automated part of the mortgage process. And so over time, exactly. Yeah, you mentioned the reinsurance business shrinking right now, obviously with rates going up, that business has really dried up for a lot of lenders. Tell me what you're seeing um, from your point of view where we are here in June that's different than say, I don't know, March or April or whatever. Well, yeah, refinance transactions, like you just mentioned, have come down a lot with rates going up. Of course, why would you refinance into a higher rate loan or a much higher rate loan? so what people are doing instead is they're taking out home equity lines of credit in a lot. We are, we've seen our home equity line of credit business, which is another one of our product lines grow substantially over the last year. And what that's just a number on substantially for me. Give me, what does that mean? Uh, you know, applications are up three X year over year and grow. Wow. And it's, okay, and it's going to keep sub- growing. You know, that's substantially. Yeah. And it's because it makes sense for consumers. If they worry about the economy, they want to lock in, um, uh, an ability to have access to more capital, whether it's to start a small business or to fund their small business or to, you know, have do a renovation or just to have a rainy day fund. And so that really makes sense for consumers who have built up equity in their homes over the last five, 10 years because the housing market's been booming. 
Um, and so that's one that I, I'm spending a lot of time on personally. I can't escape a conversation uh, with a customer without them bringing up home equity as something that they're interested in or really wanting to push hard on. Interesting. Um, is that probably because housing values have, have surged even as lending costs have also gotten higher. Yeah. And by the way, we're, I think we're going to see housing costs. I mean, this is just Nima's prediction, so I don't don't put any weight on it. <laughs> but I think we're going to see housing prices slow down their growth or maybe even flatten and possibly even go down um, because rates have gone up so much and the economy is getting worse. And that's something that you know people can afford less of a home, then they'll buy less of a home and there'll be less you know, demand. I ran into a realtor uh, friend the other day and um, they're always sunshiny and perky and every, every data point is positive. And I was stunned to have her truth tell and say, wow, what a difference three weeks makes. That was about two weeks ago when she said that. So you know, here we have someone who's, you know, naturally disposed to positive happiness and comments and was just saying that the market, in this case, high end, you know, $6 million or $5 million homes, four bedrooms in an expensive community, like just really dry up in the of less than a month. So safe to say Corey has some extra bedrooms in his home if he's looking at those homes. But but yeah, <laughs> at I least think for the summer when all the kids are in camp, I just have too many kids. Uh, um, I see. Yeah, no, it uh, has, by the way. And I, I think that's across the board. You know, it's it's we had a decade long bull run. Of course, they were cheery. They were always it was always getting better because rates were low and home prices were going up. That's a great way for people to buy homes. But when it turns this quickly, which has turned very, very quickly, it's the fastest you know raising rate environment in a long, long time, probably since the 90s. Right. And so it's very, very, it's a different environment than most realtors have ever worked in. So do you think this is a shock to the system or this is just a change? And that, and that it, as you mentioned, these realtors have never seen this people, people in, you know, professional investors who've never seen a, a bear market, which is a thing. It's amazing yeah. to believe, but you know, it was, it's been, it's been what, 14 years since 2008, 2009. Right. And that was a, that was a bear market that lasted about a minute. Yeah, it lasted, you know, yeah, barely a couple of years. I think it's a a shock to the system in the sense that it happened so fast, but I think it's very healthy. The the volumes of refinances, the home price appreciation, the rates being as low as they were, created an unhealthy ecosystem. Now, if you're printing money, you can make less prudent decisions over the long run and still yeah. be su successful. And so this will force people to create more value in the world. I'm very, I think this is very, very good for the long run. That being said, I mean, we're feeling a lot of pain. You know, we know consumers around the country are feeling a lot of pain. And I'm hoping that the way that's managed by the Fed and others will help mitigate that pain, but we'll see how it plays out. Nima Kosari is the head of Blend, co-founder and CEO, chair of the board of directors, if that matters to us, and it probably doesn't, but congratulations on that, Nima. We're grateful for your time. Um, and in uh, helping us better understand Blend Labs. We'll better understand a little bit right after this quick break when we give you the bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot about Blend Labs. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on your smart speaker by asking your smart speaker to play The Drill Down podcast, and you'll hear our latest show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. And we're back with The Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot, Isaac. Mm -hmm. If you were to guess about this young company, 
How many of the top 100 uh, financial service firms in the U.S. do you think they've got as customers? Right, because that's, that's what you want to know. Like, what's their room to growth? Have they already got the big ones? Sure. I mean, I'm just taking a guess here. Yeah, I would say maybe 20. Maybe there's 20. Some, they do have 20 and they have 11% more. They have 31%. They have 31 yeah. of the top 100 uh, U.S. financial service firms uh, at the end of the last year. Um, so, you know, these guys are growing and they're growing uh, fast, but it's they've also got a lot of room to grow into those big financial service mm -hmm. firms. Um, I say that, sorry, that was that number is based end of 2020, uh, which is the last time they've given out that number. And, um, you know, there's room for them to grow, but uh, it is a, you know, tough business to be in with rates rising. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, you got to keep, you got to keep your eye on that long ball, right? Well, and the HELOC business, 300% growth. Oh, year over year. That's amazing. All right, you've been listening to the Drill Down Podcast. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.